You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true It's been tried in the fire, still Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, August the 7th, episode number 128, Behold the Lamb, John 1, 29 through 36. In our last study, we turned the pages of history. In one way, we went back nearly 80 years, but in another way, we went way back to around three to 4,000 years. Not many people had heard of the events we dug into, but I believe this might be one of the most interesting things we have tackled on this podcast. As a bonus, we had a special guest on this episode. We had a wonderful discussion, a history lesson, Bible study, all in one. Go ahead, put your ears on and listen today. In today's episode, we hone in on a statement that John made in verse 29, once again in verse 36. John cries out, Behold the Lamb! This is what John was sent to do to bear witness of Christ. He declares that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. He told those present that day he had been sent to baptize with water, but he was also told to recognize the Messiah when he saw him. John bore record of how this all took place, and it still stands as a testimony for us today. We believe this powerful episode will bring you great joy. Now for the lesson and the teaching of God's Word. I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. We are so excited that you've joined with us today. It's going to be a powerful study. This is one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible, behold the lamb. And we're going to be looking at so many things tied in with it. I've got to say that this is one of those studies that just the title alone, it speaks volume. Yeah, this statement that was made by John the Baptist rings in my ears and it just thrills my soul to think of the Lamb of God being announced to the world. Don't you wish we could make an announcement similar to that? Well, the truth of the matter is this. We can and we should be making this same declaration to the lost and dying world we rub shoulders with daily. Amen. That is true. This very phrase is what John was born to do. He came to bear witness of the light. This is what God has us here for today as well. Yes, it is. When we do these episodes of this podcast, we're trying to tell the world and remind the church that Christ is the Lamb of God. Yeah, we're trying to draw everyone's attention away from their busyness, get it away from Facebook and everything else that might be taking our attention. And we'd like to cry out and tell you, behold the Lamb. You know, since we're already talking about it, why don't you just go ahead and read our text today and let's get started with this study. I believe I will. We're going to start by reading John 1 and 29 through 36 to get us going, and then we're going to look at each verse individually. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. 
And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. I think it's nearly a little humorous that the priests and Levites who were sent to question John about being the Messiah, and then he tells them that the one that they're looking for is standing right there among them. Then the very next day, Jesus shows up on the scene for his public announcement by John. If they had only hung around one more day, they would have seen the one that they were looking for. Was was this done on purpose by Jesus? Did he not want them there to hear this announcement? I also find it fascinating that all of this unfolded on the very next day. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him, and John couldn't help but declare, Behold the Lamb of God. This was a priestly declaration that was said over every spotless lamb that the high priest would bring back into Jerusalem from Bethlehem for sacrifice. John was definitely in the priestly line, being a descendant of Aaron through his father, Zacharias, and his mother, Elizabeth. Yes, both of them were through the priestly lineage of Aaron. John uses a form of the Greek word oida to say behold, which makes this a little interesting because oida means to know something. But in this form, it's used as an interjection and it's exclamatory. Therefore, we have the word instead of just behold, we have behold. It could be translated also as, look, over here is the lamb. The idea is that John wanted everyone who was present to see that this was the Christ. He wanted them to know the identity of the lamb, the one who is the word. It's by seeing that we know things. And John wanted the people to see him, to recognize him, and therefore know that this was Christ. They also needed to recognize that he was the fulfillment of the lamb that was required back in Exodus 12 and 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. They also needed to see him as the servant prophesied in Isaiah 53 and 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Back in Exodus 12, each family was commanded to sacrifice a lamb without blemish on the 14th day of the first month. That is true. The blood of the lamb was spread with a hyssop branch on the doorpost and lintel of the entry to each house. Let me read you just a little bit of this. In Exodus 12 and 22, And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you should go out the door of his house until the morning. John nineteen twenty nine. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. So here we find hyssop at the cross, and we find it in Exodus 12. The lamb's blood protected Israel from the judgment of the tenth plague, which was the death of the firstborn. Exodus 12 and 29 says, And it came to pass that after midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive, that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Well, wasn't the lamb to be killed and cooked whole? That's true, and none of its bones were to be broken either, and we see this in Exodus 12 and 46. 
in one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. And that leads us to John 19 and 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Well, John clearly puts Jesus in the role of Passover lamb. This includes the day of his death and the treatment of his body. The lamb of God is one that was provided by God for the sacrifice. And this lamb was most certainly provided by God. You can say that again. Ever since the Exodus, men have been looking for the Lamb of God, quite literally. They looked for a spotless lamb every Passover, but they were also looking for the lamb that Isaiah prophesied about. Would you believe me if I told you that men were looking for the lamb even before the Exodus? Can you prove that statement to our audience in case there might be an unbeliever listening? Yes, I can. And anyone who remembers the story of Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac would remember this phrase. As they were going up the mountain, Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac doesn't know this, and he finally looks at his father and says, Father, where is the lamb? It took somewhere around 2,000 years later for the answer to come, but John the Baptist proclaimed in John 1 and 29 and John 1 and 36, Behold the lamb. This was the only lamb that truly mattered. He was not only the lamb, but he was also the lamb of God. He was a lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Yes, aren't you glad that he took ours away? Amen. The Greek word iro is what we have as taketh away, and that's a powerful Greek word. It's defined as to take away, to bear, or to carry something away. Do you see all of the connections that should be forming in your minds right now? Yeah, there are numerous scriptures bombarding my mind as you're speaking. Yes, because to bear the sins gets us back to Leviticus when we read about the goat that's taking away the sin of Israel. He's bearing the guilt of Israel, so he's the scapegoat that gets to escape death, but he's going to bear the sins of the people. It also reminds us of Isaiah chapter 53, several verses there, but I'm going to limit it to verse 4, verse 11, and verse 12. Let me read you those. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By this knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, this is exactly what the scapegoat would do as recorded in Leviticus 16. Yes, and in that setting, the scapegoat would have all the sins of Israel imputed to it by the priest laying his hand upon its head. This is exactly what God said would happen with Aaron in Exodus 28 and 38 because he was to bear the sin of the people. Let me read you that. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Jesus fulfilled all of these things as the lamb. Yes. And that phrase take away, it can also mean to destroy as we see it in John 11 and 48. You may be thinking, the hind world, does that make sense? He takes away the sins of the world. Well, he destroyed the sins of the world. Let me read you John eleven forty-eight. If we let him thus alone... All men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. In other words, it's going to be destroyed. Wow, that's amazing. Could you go through some of the other meanings of that phrase? Okay, you're talking about take away, aren't you? Yeah. All right, Jesus took the sin of the world away. 
Jesus bore the sin of the world, taking our sins from us. Jesus carried the sin of the world away from us. Jesus destroyed the sin of the world upon the cross. (laughs) That's just awesome stuff right there. I agree. And that's what Jesus did for you and me and all who are redeemed today. We also see a little bit of this in 1 John 3 and 5 and Colossians 2 and 14. And I want to read that for the audience's sake. 1 John 3 and 5 says, And you know that he was manifested. The reason he came, the reason he was revealed was to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Colossians 2 and 14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. We see what happened in Hebrews 9 and 28 and 1 Peter 2 and 24. Hebrews 9 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. 1 Peter 2 and 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body, On the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. There's so much that could be said right here in these passages that I've read. I'm simply having to limit all that I say. (laughs) That's unusual for you to limit what you're going to say. Well, you may not believe it, but this is one of the most powerful portions of Scripture, and it's hard for me to keep from wanting to preach it, much less just talk about it. (laughs) John 1 and 30. I want to go ahead and go there and read this verse, and we're going to start going into some of the other setting right here, and I think we're going to find some very interesting things. John says, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is the third time we have this stated in this chapter, so there's definitely a reason for this. Without a doubt, God wanted this declaration of John to be known. The reason I say that is because we saw this in John 1, 15, John 1, 27, and now again here in John 1, 30. For God to have that recorded so often in such a short span, it seems pretty important. I agree. There's some things that we hardly have mentioned in the Bible that are important, and this is told three times in a matter of about 14 verses. Yeah. John is adamantly trying to point out all the focus should be on Christ. So he tells the whole crowd that's gathered there that day, this is the one I've been telling you about. He is who I was talking about. He's the one that's concerning whom I said, after me comes a man, he has precedence over me because he was before me. To me, verse 31 holds a lot of insight, so I want to move on and read that, and then we're going to make some comments about this. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water? What does John mean by the phrase, I knew him not? Had he never met Jesus before? They were cousins, but had they never been around each other until this time? No, and don't stop there, for I see a couple of other options as well. I want to throw in a few options of my own. Did he know Jesus, but did he not know that Jesus was the Messiah until this point? Was John simply saying that it had been a while since he had seen Jesus and he didn't even recognize him at the first? I believe John answers this in the words that follow, though. Uh, Oh, yeah? In what way? He didn't know the identity of the Messiah, but he did know that the Messiah would be revealed to Israel. And this is why John come baptizing with water. Obviously, God told John what to expect, but he never told John who to expect. I like that point. That really makes a lot of sense. John predicted his coming, but he just didn't know his identity. John said he knew him not. But he knew that he must be made manifest, which is the Greek word phanerou. 
Fanaru means to be revealed or made manifest. John was saying that he knew the Messiah must be made known or openly revealed to everyone, but this information had not been disclosed to him by God. I also like the way John reminded the crowd of his calling once more, telling them that this is the reason he came baptizing with water. Uh, in other words, he was simply telling them in another way that he was sent before the Messiah. Yes, he did. He kept saying that over and over throughout this chapter. He was preparing the way before the Messiah. Even the book of Luke records this. Let me go over to the book of Luke. Let me grab chapter 1, and I believe it's down around verse 17. I want to read a verse, and then it's towards the end of the chapter. Let me see. Yeah, verse 76, verse 77. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, talking about John going before Christ, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. That must have been something else to have those things said about you before you were even born. That's right. John gives his explanation of what he knew and what he was told to look for in the next two verses. And we're going to examine both of these verses together, verse 32 and 33. And John bare record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Once again, we're told that John bore record, which seems to be his main purpose for even being born. Go back and read John chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, and you'll see that clearly. Yeah, but this time John bore record that he saw the Spirit descend from heaven, verse 34. That's true. Let me read that because I only read 32 and 33, but if you go on into 34, it says, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. This is the exact thing that all Jews, especially the religious leaders, have been looking for for over the past several hundred years. Well, this had been prophesied by several other prophets many years prior to this. Interestingly enough, though, John saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. That's not by chance nor by coincidence. And I believe it's certainly incredible. For the first time we ever read of the Spirit in Scripture, it's in Genesis 1 and 2. Let me read you that. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That word moved, when we're told the Spirit moved, it means hovered as a bird, fluttered as wings would flutter, and brooded over the waters. You know, brooding is a fascinating point. Because a bird most known to brood is the dove. Yes, it is. I don't know if any other birds are considered to brood, but I know the dove is. Once again, we have a, a direct connection between the Spirit of God and the waters. Another gospel writer detailed the part about the Spirit descending as a dove, and that was Matthew. Matthew 3 and 16 says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. What do you think it means when it says the Spirit descended as a dove? Well, that's an interesting phrase. And let me, let me throw in another scripture, and then I'll try to answer that question, because I think Luke took it even further than Matthew. The physician said in Luke 3 and 21 and 22, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Now, Matthew says 
the Holy Ghost descended as a dove. Luke says there was a bodily form of a dove that was present. That's very intriguing to me. Many scholars believe this is what John meant by saying that the Spirit descended as a dove and what Matthew meant when he said that he came down as a dove or like a dove would have done. They feel that this is why John used his language, for the Spirit came in the form of a dove. A dove is basically a glorified pigeon, isn't it? Yes, it is, but I believe that this is significant in itself, for the pigeon was considered as a clean bird for an offering in the Old Testament. I knew that a dove is considered by many people as a pure white pigeon. This would mean it was seen as a pure offering bird that was totally acceptable unto God. That's true, and that gives us a little insight as to why God allowed the Holy Ghost to be depicted in this manner. I love the way that it says that the Spirit abode upon Christ, for the Greek word mino is used here. This means that the Spirit remained, he abode, he stayed, or he tarried upon him. That's what the word mino means. Believe it or not, this is very much connected to what the Spirit was doing back in Genesis 1 and 2 when we first saw him. The spirit that was hovering and fluttering over the waters has now landed upon the one who will give the living waters. As the spirit hovered above the waters, now we find the spirit in the form of a dove hovering above the one who gives living water. Can you believe that? The spirit will abide with him. He will abide upon him until he gives the spirit or even if you want to call it the living waters that has been foretold by the prophets. Great day. That is some powerful stuff right there. Yes, it is. And you can go back to numerous scriptures in the Old Testament where it talks about the waters, the living waters, and all of that that's going to be given by the Messiah. And this is the fulfillment. John goes on in verse 33, and he states that this is when he finally knew that Jesus was the Messiah. The one who sent him to baptize with water would have to have been the Father. That's right. And the Father told John, the one you see the Spirit descend from heaven and remain upon, this is he who's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. All three synoptic writers mention this, and now John finally brings it to the forefront. We see this mentioned again in Acts 1 and 5 even. For Luke says there, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. John's baptism of repentance was only a symbol of what Jesus would do in a spiritual sense. John testified to the people that he had witnessed this event happen, I guess, when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. This is how John knew Jesus was the Messiah, but it is also how he knew he would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Ghost. That is so true. The key word in this is baptize with the Holy Ghost because that word means to wash, it means to cleanse, and it means to completely immerse. Just as John washed people in the waters of the baptism of repentance, Christ is going to give the fulfillment of this act. John is saying that Christ will wash people with the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? It means that this is how he's going to make people holy. You make someone clean, pure, or holy by being washed. Christ is going to cleanse people with the Holy Ghost. He will completely immerse them in God's power. He will totally immerse them in God's spirit. He will fully immerse people in the presence of God. You can say it a lot of different ways, but the meaning doesn't change. You know, all of this is very powerful and very informative, but in reality, John is simply telling us how he come to know the identity of the Messiah. (laughs) That's a good point, yes. Verse 34, I've already commented about it, but I want to read it again and make a few more comments about this verse before we move into 35. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. 
In this short verse, we see one of the most powerful proclamations found in the Gospel of John. The phrase, and I saw, is the witnessing by the eyes and the mental faculties of John. John goes on to say, I didn't only see, but I also bear record. This means that he not only witnessed it, but he gave witness to the fact. John not only saw this, but he spoke of it and confirmed it. He bore record to the fact. He stood good for his statement. However you want to word it, those are all definitions of that wording. He testified to the knowledge that he had, to the enlightenment he had been shown, and he witnessed about it. You might think that this is a reach here, but I believe that it is also telling us that John was willing to die for this. I don't think you're stretching things here, but how about explain what you mean? Well, we know this because the Greek word martyreo is what's used here when he says he bare record. That means he gave witness to. It's also where we get the word martyr from. John eventually did die for his beliefs concerning Jesus. So he bore record. We know that he did that. What did John bear record unto? Uh, that this is the Son of God. This isn't just a small thing here. He didn't say that he ran into Miss Swanson's son in the grocery store. No, you're right. He wasn't just making a statement or making an observation. He no. was declaring a testimony. That's right. John is functioning as a legal witness right here, and he's doing so in order to confirm the identity of Jesus Christ. He's confirming some amazing things for a Jew. He confirmed his testimony to not only the Jews, but to whoever would listen. Amen. The first point I want to make about that is this tells us that God has a son. Then he tells them who God's son is. It had been an accepted thing for many years that the Messiah would be considered as God's son, much in the same way that the king was viewed as God's son. In other words, he is the king. This would have caused them to wonder if he is the son of David, the king. Yes, that's the point that I was getting at. There's others within Scripture who came to the same conclusion. Let me show you this in Matthew 14, 33. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. John 1 and 49, Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. So we see that there were other Jews who came to this knowledge that John the Baptist was testifying of. Let's go on into verses 35 and 36. And again, the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. We are being given a time frame here in this gospel. We read where the priest and the Levites came to John, and then the next day, Jesus comes to John. This is when John makes his bold declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. True, but now we have the next day once again, which would put this as the second day after the visit by the priest and the Levites. This was the very next day after John proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Yes, it specifies that John stood and said what he did, and I think that that could be taken a lot of different ways. John stood good for his testimony. John stood for Jesus Christ. He stood in honor and reverence of the Son of God. He boldly stood up for who and what he believed. Are you going to take every word in this passage and make a play on the words? <laughs> you really could. They're, they're so powerful and got so much meaning to them. <laughs> but on this day, we have two of John's disciples standing there with John the Baptist as Jesus comes by once more. Who do you believe these two disciples were? That's been a matter of debate for many, many years. And the identity of these two disciples has been argued so often, it's not even funny to do it. Yeah. But... One of them is definitely given to us in verses 40 through 41, and the Bible tells us the one that we do know by name is Andrew. But then who is the other one? Is there any way we could ever learn who the other disciple was? 
To me, the strongest probability is that this is the author himself, John the Beloved. John was standing there with John the Baptist and with Andrew as Jesus walked by. To me, that's my belief. You may disagree with it. You may think it's somebody else. That's fine. It's got to be one of the 12. We know that. And so if it's Andrew, it's got to be one of the remaining 11. That leaves it up for grabs a little, but I, I personally lean to it being John the Beloved. It's at this point, John the Baptist reiterated his proclamation that we talked about so much from verse 29. He boldly declared once more in 36, behold, the Lamb of God. Why did John do this again? I believe that he was making sure he fulfilled his prophetic calling. Go back to Isaiah 40 and 3. Go back to Matthew 3 and 3, Mark 1 and 3. Go over to Luke 3 and 4. Every time you read about John, it's told that this is what he came to do. He came as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I want you to notice just how emphatic this statement is. This wasn't just a bold declaration. This was hollered out so everyone around them could hear it. This verse ends with an exclamation point, meaning that John didn't just simply say it. He exclaimed it loudly. So you're meaning it could have been said this way. Look, it's the Lamb of God. That's exactly right. That's good. That's really good. I think that John might have even been louder than that, but please don't do that for my eardrum's sake. <laughs> John uses the Greek word emblepo right here. When looking at Jesus, this word means to stare directly at someone. He locked his eyes on Christ where if his disciples were looking at him, everybody could see where his eyes were going and he was looking at Jesus. I want to ask the audience today, I'm fixing to wrap this up, but I want to ask you a question before I close. Are you so focused on Christ that if the world looks at you, they can tell where your hope is, that they can tell where your eyes are? Your eyes are on the prize, your eyes are on the goal, or is your eyes on making more money or on doing more things and having a good time down here? Or are you locked in on Christ to where if you were to proclaim, I love Jesus, and they were to look at you, what would they think Jesus was to you? Who would God be to you if you said, I love the Lord, and all you did was pursue one thing or something else? John had his focus on Christ, and that's what he was looking at. Hey, that makes the scripture seem to come to life when you put it that way. Well, that's what we're doing this for is to make the scriptures come to life to people who haven't seen certain things. And I'm thankful that when we read the word, it's a living word, the living word, and it comes to life to us. Amen. Great lesson today. We've got a question in here today. You ready for it? I think I am. At least I hope I am. I hope you're ready for this one. All right. The question is, what about all the contradiction in the Bible? There's one specifically on the age of a king that I have heard some about. Well, I can answer this question fairly quickly and concisely. First off, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Amen. So that would settle every bit of it. That solves the whole problem. But let me speak to the question just for the sake of not being rude or abrupt. There are some differences in accounts by the way that they are told, and it matters from what standpoint they were described, and it looks like they're telling different stories, different things. Sometimes it's a difference in which way the storyline was viewed. It could be a difference in timing. That this was mentioned at one point, but then this is mentioned again later on. But this actually that's mentioned later on happened before the other. That doesn't mean it's contradictory. It just means it was recorded later. There's certain details that was left out of one story where in the other storyline it was included. That doesn't mean that there was a contradiction. It just means that one person omitted it. One person added it. If there is one definite contradiction in the Bible, 
it would completely destroy the credibility of the whole Bible. There wouldn't be any scripture that you could stand upon and hope that it was true. Because if one of them is wrong, the other 31,101 other scriptures could be wrong as well. The authority of scripture would be down the drain. Its infallibility would be washed up because it would now be a fallible book. It would no longer be the plenary word of God. It wouldn't be sufficient to us. It would never be sufficient to us because the simple fact is if if it has one error, it might as well be full of errors. No one could say that this word of God was inspired of God either, unless God is flawed for allowing contradictions in his word. If God's word is flawed, then God himself is flawed, and we've got big, big trouble. The specific contradiction mentioned by the questioner is one that atheists love to bring to the table, but once again, without bringing up the storyline or the portion of scripture that it's found in, it was being told from two entirely different viewpoints. There was no discrepancy in either account other than the fact of what was being mentioned. It's like First Kings and First Chronicles, Second Kings and Second Chronicles. They detail the lives of kings. They mention a lot of similar points and some of the exact same points, but some of them mention only the good things while one of the books mentions the negative things. So we look at those and we think, oh, well, there's two different accounts right here. One of them says he followed the Lord fully. The other one says that he turned in his heart away from God. Well, that was true. For years, he followed God fully. That was the positive account. But the negative part was one day he quit. That doesn't mean that there was a discrepancy in the word of God. It just means that there was two different things being done in the telling of the event. And they were both serving its purpose for why it was written. Good answer, Brother Don, and I fully agree. Remember, friends, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back Friday, August the 11th, for special edition number 94, Table Fellowship. He's done so much for me, this I know. Will he change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. To that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.